This is our last full day of our four measurables session for 2016. I'm smiling because the, the way the sutras work is that you take them in and then they just work. And then event, and one day they suddenly emerge with some new meaning that you didn't realize before. And then they go back underground again and then they work and then they pop up again. <laughs> so the one that popped up while I was bowing was one of my favorite quotes from Dogen Zinji. A deluded person and an enlightened person are rowing the same boat. And what, it, what occurred to me is the enlightened person is the one who got you here, got you in this boat. But I think the deluded person is doing all the rowing and the enlightened person is just enjoying it all. <laughs> right? <laughs> so part of you is just like, ah, ah, ah. And there's part of you that's, hmm, this is a great <laughs> ride. I love it. <laughs> so you just never know when those things will pop up. Sudden little, a little new insight into the sutras. The Buddha said, happy do we live without hate among those who hate. Happily do we live without hate among those who hate. The fruit of our practice. Hmm? Hatred in the world is not going to end. The one person that we can do something about is the hatred in this person. And then that spreads. Abiding in this world like a lotus in muddy water, the mind, the heart, the mind are pure and go beyond. Our job is to uncover that purity and let it manifest and do good in the world. This session has been a basic introduction to practicing with the four immeasurables. In the past, when we've done this session, we've just focused on metta, on loving kindness, for the entire five days, six days. But last year and this year, we decided to expand, try expanding the session to include the other three, uh, because they all work together. They're all important. So adding in compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Please don't be confused by the potpourri that we've offered, or the, the delicatessen array we've offered. Different practices resonate with different people. And different practices are appropriate at different times and in different situations in your life. For example, if you become ill and your body is aching, you could do loving kindness practice for your body. Dear body, may you be at ease within the changes brought about by this illness. May you be restored to health. Or yesterday or today when the temperature is high, higher than we're used to in Oregon, we can suffer. We're always trying to get into a range of comfort and hold ourselves in that range of comfort. Okay, this is the range I'm comfortable in. Don't let me go get too cold or too hot. However, that's defined in your place where you live. It's defined differently, of course. It's all subjective. And I was... Um, Yesterday, I was, I was aware this is exactly the temperature that all of our summer sessions 
were at GCRA. So I learned to go to the place beyond heat and cold, which is a koan. To go to the place beyond heat and cold. Actually, the koan says, become so hot, the hot kills you. The heat kills you. You become so cold, the cold kills you. But that was a little bit extra, a step along the way before becoming so empty that heat and cold don't bother you. A step along the way is to find a place in heat that inside that is not hot, that is actually cool, and rest your awareness there. It's like one of the practices with pain. Fundamentally, we need to go beyond pain, to go through the pain and beyond the pain, become so much larger than the pain that it isn't pain anymore, which gives us tremendous confidence because we know we'll have pain in life and maybe more pain as we get older. But another way to work with pain is, you know, we're so focused on the pain, which occupies, I don't know, 10, 15% of our body. If we flip that around and become aware of the parts of the body that are comfortable and find the most comfortable place and rest our awareness there, then we can be at ease. So if we're sick, we can do loving-kindness practice for our body, which works so hard for us all day and all night without us even being aware of it. And then we can expand the field of metta to include anyone else, anywhere, who's also ill. Or you might find that your mind is totally panicked because you're sick. You know, the mind starts, as one, one student from... Great Britain said, disaster mongering, mongering means like selling things, fish, maybe. Disaster mongers selling you disasters. So your mind panics. What if I get worse? I can't afford to miss work. I've used up all my sick leave. What if I have cancer? You know, it just goes from A to Z, like instantly. What if I have cancer? What if I die? What will I wear to my funeral? When the mind becomes frantic, then you realize, oh, my mind is suffering. See, out of awareness, we're bigger than our suffering. Our practice teaches us to be bigger than our suffering. Awareness is bigger than our suffering. So out of awareness, you realize, oh, my mind is suffering. And you do a compassion practice for your mind. Dear mind, may you be free from fear and anxiety. May you be at ease with this temporary change in body sensations and energy level. May you be happy in impermanence. And then you can expand the, the field of compassion to include anyone who's panicked or in any, in any way mentally distressed. And then it might take you a while to recover from your illness and you see, see somebody who had the same illness. Sometimes we have a cold that spreads around the monastery or even flu. Pretty rare, but it does happen once in a while. And you see somebody who had the same illness, but they recovered faster, and they're bouncing around while you're dragging around your behind. And you feel jealous. How come I'm not better yet? Any comparison like that is an open door for the inner critic. And then, of course, it leads to, what's wrong with me? 
or the outer judge. Oh, they think they're so great because they got better faster. But if we realize, oh, that's just jealousy, that's envy, then we can drop into sympathetic joy practice instead and convert that energy to, oh, I rejoice in their good health. I rejoice in their strong constitution. May they continue to experience good health and the causes of good health. So immediately we can pick our mind up out of this well of suffering and move it into something as beneficial for us and for them. When Kyoko was leading us through the sympathetic joy practice yesterday, I realized that somehow I've neglected it. I I used to use it fairly frequently whenever the thought of one particular person arose, someone who had accomplished something that I wanted to do. But now that person has become ill without hope of recovery. And my insidious envy and resentful attitude towards them shifted immediately to compassion when that happened. Maybe that's the benefit of sickness, old age, and death. When they come, they have the power to shift any hint of envy to spontaneous and authentic compassion. So yesterday I realized that I've been using sympathetic joy only to counteract negative emotions and thoughts. And I realized while Kilko was speaking that I need to expand my sympathetic joy practice to any situation in which another person is happy. It doesn't matter if I feel envy or not. Any situation where another person is happy. It's not that I'm unhappy when someone's happy, but I realize that my happiness for their happiness is limited, both in time and amount, and that I can expand it just as I do metta. I can grow it. For example, if somebody has a birthday, we sing happy birthday and we have some kind of treat, but my habit is to move on from that fairly fast. I think because Hogan and I are the kind of people who don't pay much attention to birthdays or and no, no attention to our wedding anniversary, which we don't even know what day it is. <laughs> Sometime in August. Might be coming up. <laughs> and we celebrate birthdays by hugging and saying, I'm glad you were born, and I'm really glad I encountered you in this lifetime. And the other person says the same thing back. And then we go back to work. <laughs> That's like our big celebration. (laughs) So his mom will call and say, oh, what did you do for your birthday? Because my birthday is the day after hers. And I have to say, uh, well, uh, (laughs) we're planning to go to Europe next year. (laughs) During Nan's talk, I realized that when other people have a birthday, I could pause and intentionally open to sympathetic joy as I'm singing happy birthday and intentionally feed the joy field. It's like free giveaway. And I'm sure each person here can think of times and occasions in which to bring the warm happiness of sympathetic joy. Places where you don't and where you could, you could bring it in, infuse, infuse the occasion with more happiness. Then equanimity, upekka, is a practice 
that seems to be nourished by being in nature. Have you noticed that? It seems to be nourished, thoroughly nourished by being in nature. Is nature equanimitous? Is nature inherently equanimitous? Are trees equanimitous? Are rocks equanimitous? Maybe so. When you sit and sink your awareness into a tree, like we do during grasses and trees, we merge our awareness with the tree's awareness, both deep down in the, in the roots and the soil and up, up, up as high as the tree reaches up into its tip-top leaves. You're able to enter the tree's experience of night and day and warmth and coolness and rain and wind and birds building nests, and nests falling apart, and landscapes all around changing, people coming in, bulldozers, changing things, and leaves drying up and falling off, and branches being barren, and then new leaves growing, season after season after season after season. 200 years for the the mansion maple in our forest, 200 years. What has it seen? There's a 4,000-year-old yew tree in England that was planted during the Bronze Age and is still growing. 4,000 years old. What has it seen? And in the U.S., there's a 4,800-year-old bristlecone pine. How many waves of impermanence have those trees experienced during those centuries, those millennia. And then when you sink your awareness into the earth, into the earth, you're entering an enormous field of equanimity. Four and a half billion years of existence. Through fire, volcanoes, Mountains uplifting, inland seas existing for thousands of years and then drying up or draining out and creating the whole of the Columbia Gorge. The arising and extinction of species crawling around on its surface. Great forest fires, great floods. The separation of continents. The earth has seen all of this and yet it is able to support each individual human being each individual creature of all sorts. And it holds us close to it by this force we call gravity. The earth is always hugging us to it. The earth is always supporting us each step we take. We don't hesitate to step out of bed in the morning. We have complete faith that the earth will be there to meet our foot. People say they don't have faith. We have, we have faith from morning till night, and especially all night long. While we're asleep, we have so much faith in this whole body. Right? So kiss the earth when you're out there meditating. We did that practice last session. Kiss the earth. It came from a practice somebody had heard of in India where as soon as people get out of bed in the morning, they kneel down and kiss the earth. 
They're very lovely factors. As the Buddha said to his son, Rahula, have meditation like the earth. For when you are developing meditation in tune with the earth, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. Just as when people throw what is clean or unclean on the earth, feces, urine, saliva, pus, or blood, the earth is not horrified, humiliated, or disgusted by it. In the same way, when you are developing meditation in tune with the earth, agreeable and disagreeable sensory impressions that have arisen will not stay in charge of your mind. We've introduced the four immeasurables and several ways, different ways to practice with them. For example, with loving kindness, there are three ways to generate loving kindness. Please don't become confused or feel overwhelmed by everything that's been offered. Just take up one or two of these practices and work with them. And you can be creative with them. You don't have to do them exactly as the book says or as I instructed you. Each person's mind stream has been flowing without much opposition since they were born. So for some people that's 20 years and for some people in this room it's over 70 years. It takes a while to, u- to learn to use these tools to turn the mind stream to a different course. It just takes a while. In the addiction field, they sometimes say, as many years as you are addicted, you have to actively practice sobriety. So we could apply that to ourselves. It's an antidote for impatience. And of course, it, it might be lifetimes that we're working with to try to turn around. It is lifetimes that we're, whether it's our lifetime or other lifetimes that have been pinged on our, us. It is lifetimes that we're working with, so be patient. It takes a while to learn to use these tools to turn the mind, the heart, mind, to a different course. But each tool, the more you practice it, the sharper it becomes and the easier to use. It becomes like any tool. And the, and the more you automatically pull it out when you need it. From anger and irritation to benevolence. You can pick up the mind stream that's flowing in anger and irritation direction and move it to benevolence, to friendliness, to metta. We can pick up the mind stream that's flowing into pity or contempt, and we can move it into compassion for ourselves or for others. We can pick up the mind stream that's flowing into envy or jealousy, insidious comparison, and move it into rejoicing in our own happiness and others' happiness. We can pick up the mind stream that's moving into drama, highs and lows, mood swings, and we can move it into equanimity. You now have the tools, but you have to practice with them to keep them sharp, to keep them ready to use when they're needed. The Buddha said, Contentment is the greatest wealth. He didn't say drama is the greatest wealth. 
said contentment is the greatest wealth. Contentment, we would add in Zen, contentment with things as they are. Suzuki Roshi said, things as they is. Things as they is. Which really points it down to right here, right now. Right? The last practice that we traditionally introduce in this session is Tonglen practice, sending and receiving. You've already been doing sending and receiving. So if you were doing the breath practice where you breathe in peace to yourself, and breathe out peace to the world. Breathe in peace or ease to yourself on the in-breath. Breathe out peace or ease to everyone else and let it diffuse around the world. On the out-breath, you've been doing a kind of sending and receiving. Tonglen is a Tibetan practice that means sending and receiving. Tibetans are very interesting. In their practice, they like to turn they like to turn the tables on our usual way of thinking. We do that in Zen too, but Tibetans have a particular way of doing it. Usually we say, there are ways that I don't want to feel. I don't want to feel anger. I don't want to feel contempt. I don't want to feel jealousy. I'm tired of the way my moods go up and down. I'm tired of the inner critic. I'm tired of drama. I want to get rid of them. May I be free of anger, etc. The Tibetans say, no, 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 suffering is good. It is only through suffering that we are willing to change and grow. We know that. It is only through our varieties of suffering that we can have empathy for people who have the same kind of suffering. When you're, when a parent dies, you realize, oh, I never had enough empathy for someone whose parent died until now. Now I know how it feels. It's a very inefficient system we human beings are <laughs> brought up in over and over and over again. We have to learn it. But hopefully we can pass something on to the next generation so they get a little jump start. But beyond that, beyond the fact that suffering helps us be more compassionate, suffering is just energy. And if you take that to its logical extreme, samsara is nirvana. It's just we've got the polarity wrong. Energy is just energy. Samsara and nirvana are made of the same stuff. They're made of our very life, identical. Just as energy can be converted, you can convert mechanical energy into chemical energy, chemical energy into electrical energy, and so on. It's made of the same stuff. Samsara and nirvana are the same stuff. It isn't somewhere else, off in the future, where we have to keep running towards it. It's right here. This is it. Just as energy can be harnessed to do harm, it can be harnessed to do good. The energy we call radioactivity did a lot of harm. It killed tens of thousands of people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But radioactivity can do a lot of good in appropriate doses. 
It enables us to take x-rays of people who are sick. It enables us to eliminate certain cancers which are very sensitive to it. Energy is just energy. It's we who decide how to direct and use it. Anger can destroy, but it can be transformed into burning determination to keep the precept, not to get angry, but to seek and dissolve its source. Anything we run away from still controls us through fear. And fear is a very expensive fuel to run a life on. In Zen, we say, walk straight into the fear, into the distress, into the pain, physical or emotional, and investigate it. Take it apart. We say you need to walk straight into it. The Tonglen view is you need to take the fear and distress in, actively in, breathe it in. So in doing Tonglen practice, at first you learn to flesh, what they call flesh. This is similar to what would happen if you were sitting here tired and hot and unhappy and sweaty and resisting sleep unsuccessfully and resentful, and I yelled, help, the kitchen is on fire. Instantly, the sleepiness, the heat, the discomfort, the resentment would disappear, and you would spend, you would run to the kitchen and spend three hours putting out the fire. And after it was put out, you will feel, you would feel jubilant, you would feel intimate with those who were beside you, you'd be like glad-handing, you would be so awake and so satisfied. This is evidence that everyone can flesh. Everyone can flesh. You can take what seems like suffering and flesh it into something else. So in Tibetan practice, what do you flesh into? You flesh into emptiness. You flesh into spaciousness. It's like the steam from your coffee instantly dissipating. So there it is, and then it's gone. Mm -hmm. So try it for a moment. Close your eyes and conjure up some aspect of your own suffering. So maybe a memory of, of some time you were suffering, some memory that hasn't quite gone away. Maybe a time somebody was unkind to you or misunderstood you, spoke ill of you. So conjure it up and now flesh it. It's like throwing it into a white-hot furnace. For a brief second, it's incandescent, and then it's gone. If it helps, you can imagine something in your heart that converts it, literally in your heart a brilliant diamond or a blue flame, or it could be in your heart. So you take it in, you breathe it in, you breathe it in to whatever place you want to breathe it into, with whatever accessory you want to add there, and then you flash it, and you breathe out emptiness. It's gone. So try that a few times. Breathing in some kind of distress or unhappiness from your life,
separation release. When we were doing this years ago, somebody said, oh, this is like being an air conditioner with an air filter in it. <laughs> so you take in the air conditioner, takes in warm, humid, smoggy air, and then flashes it and sends it out as cool, fresh air. So some of the instructions are to imagine suffering as hot and humid and heavy and thick and oppressive and then flash it and breathe it out as light, bright, sparkling energy, refreshing energy. So you can try it on your own with anger. Try it with jealousy. Try it with drama. Whatever, whatever fuel you want to put into that flash. Then the second stage of this, if you want to do it, would be to imagine, to expand it, and to include all the suffering in the world. So close your eyes and imagine all the different kinds of suffering in the world. This is like Kanon practice. Kanon, she who hears the cries of the world. You are aware of all of the suffering in the world and you breathe it in and you flash it and you give back all of your own happiness. This is like radical tongling. Mm -hmm. So you breathe in all of the unhappiness and distress in the whole world, flash it, and give back all of your own happiness, all your own good fortune. You just give it away. all your pleasures, all your good fortune, all your skills, all your talents, all the awards you've ever won, all the beautiful things you've ever traded or bought, all of that, you just give it away on the out-breath. take in illness and you give away good health. You take in strength, take in weakness, take in poverty, give away strength, give away riches, material possessions. Give everybody your wealth. So now you have two different ways to practice Tonglen. So you can try it, just your own working with your own 
distress or suffering incidents in your life that you'd like to work with, <clears throat> take them in, flash them, release them as lightness, ease, fresh, cool air, however you want to creatively envision that or feel that. Hot, heavy, humid, thick, oppressive, out, refreshing, flashing, out, refreshing, uplifting, however you want to uh, work with it. And then if you want to, you can work with taking in the world's suffering, poverty and so on, and giving away all that you have. Was, isn't that, wouldn't that be a wonderful way to end your life, to have dissolved all of the suffering in your life and have, to have given away all your happiness? You have to anyway. You have to. Well, but we can actively do it beforehand so we're not clinging when the time comes. So this is not an easy practice. Hmm? This Tonglen is not an easy practice. And you can see why we're careful about uh, not introducing it by itself. It really, I think, should not be introduced unless you've got a good, good foundation in the four immeasurables. Because you may have detected that already. You, you can meet a lot of resistance in taking in what you don't want. Distress, pain, sorrow, and giving away what you want to hold on to. All the love you've experienced in your life, laughter, success, pleasure. So you can see why you need to have a foundation in loving kindness, compassion, and joy for your own self. Because Zen, Zen people often, they want to, and Americans are particularly bad at this, the Tibetans think it's very funny. They want, people want to ju- jump into an advanced practice, and Zen people want to ju- jump into the hardest practice. Just give me the hardest practice. Skip all that like namby-pamby, like opening your heart stuff. Just give me, give me Tonglen, right? But if you jump into Tonglen without a foundation in friendliness and genuine care for yourself, then it becomes a kind of Olympic event or even self-punishment and a playground for the inner critic. Sure, take away all the suffering and give away all your good fortune. You don't deserve good fortune. Look at what a poor meditator you are. None of this is going to work. Your flashing is so pitiful. Giving away your good fortune is what you deserve, right? You see how easily it can get twisted by the inner critic. So we have to be careful with it. There has to be, no matter what, which of the four immeasurables we're doing or if we're doing Tonglen in particular, there has to be a very solid foundation in self-care and directing metta, compassion, and joy to ourselves and developing equanimity. Equanimity because... People get scared. I don't want to take in cancer. What if that makes me get cancer? You know, so Tonglen is really a pretty radical practice. But it works. The first time we ever did Tonglen, we had a young man at Larch Mountain. And he was having difficulty with his mother. He was in his 20s. And, you know, typical difficulty and resistance to his mother. And just, like, didn't want to hear anything she had to say. And he had to go and visit her for some family event. And so he did Tonglen before he left, and he did Tonglen throughout the whole visit. And he said it was actually a very easy visit because he could actually see her suffering and his, the desi- his desire to remove her suffering could be accomplished through Tonglen. 
And Tonglen is actually a lovely and logical extension of loving-kindness practice. Because if you were sitting at the bedside of someone, or maybe even a pet, that you loved, who was very ill and in visible pain, you would gladly take in their pain and transform it and give it back as ease. You would gladly do that. It's the first instinct. If you could breathe in their pain and transform it, give it back as ease, you would do that in an instant. But then Tonglen ups the ante. If you could take in the world's pain and dissolve it by giving away all the happy moments of your life up to now, would you do it? So practice Tonglen if you wish. If you don't, it's fine. Some people say, nope, not for me. I'm very happy with meta practice. That is completely fine. If you want to practice it for a while and see how it goes, that's fine too. So if you do practice Tonglen, remember, it's breathing in distress, yours and then later another's, flashing it into emptiness and breathing out ease and pleasure. You could try it for at least one period, maybe, this afternoon. And if you don't like it, go back to one or two of the four measurable practices. Basic friendliness, compassion for pain, rejoicing in your own and others' good fortune. Dogen Zenji wrote, a single plum flower blossoming calls for the arising of spring in the empty cauldron of ages. A single heart blossoming with metta calls for the arising of spring in the vastness of ages. It is your own heart that can, in the muddy water of a busy, push-pull, confusing life, bloom with metta. Do not doubt that the effects of that single opening heart can reverberate throughout the chain of cause and effect throughout the reaches of space and time. Do not underestimate the power of one person. Do not underestimate the power of 50 people practicing loving kindness here together for five days. Yanaponika Thera speaks about how our meditative practice and our everyday life mesh. He says, if one's practical conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, the four immeasurables, if one's practical daily conduct is increasingly governed by these sublime states, the mind will come to harbor less resentment, tension, and irritability, the reverberations of which often subtly intrude into the hours of our meditation, forming the hindrance of restlessness. Methodical meditative practice will help love, compassion, joy, and equanimity become spontaneous. It will help us make the mind firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us to maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. So our daily life practice makes our meditation Days stronger, our meditation, working with these immeasurables, 
makes our daily life, the foundation for our daily life, stronger. So he says, it will, it will help us make the mind firmer and calmer in withstanding the numerous irritations in life that challenge us to maintain these four qualities in thoughts, words, and deeds. Of course, thoughts come first. Thoughts are the precursors to words and deeds. Thoughts of self. When thoughts become like clouds drifting across the sky, when the mind becomes the empty field, when the mind becomes like the vast blue sky, then the glue that holds this self together begins to dissolve. When the self is emptied out, we begin to accord with the flow. And as the verses in Faithline say, when no thing can give offense, then all obstructions cease to be, and we accord with the flow. Dogen Zenji says, an empty hand cannot make a fist. That's where Zen is so good, pithy, right? An empty hand cannot make a fist. Absorb the steadfast equanimity of the earth through the hara. Let the mind be open, relaxed, and clear. Practice with diligence. Allow the practice to carry you diligently for the rest of this session. Every moment of practice matters. Dogen Zenji said, A dragon hides in muddy water. That dragon is your full potential. Let it emerge from that muddy, muddy, muddy water and let it soar. Thank you.